all you freaks, geeks, and cinemaniacs. From the heart of Hollyweird, California, at the epicenter of all things eerie and awesome, it's time for Charles Band's Full Moon Freak Show. This week, my guest is a man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and introduce him anyway. He's a legendary film critic, author, writer, comedian, an actor who has been a tireless champion of all things weird, wild, wonderful, and cinematically ridiculous. His name is John Bloom, but you know him best as Joe Bob Briggs, the trash-talking redneck horror host who first found fame on his well-loved TV shows, Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater, Monster Vision, and most recently, Shudder's smash hit series, The Last Drive-In. Oh, and he was famously fired by Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese's Casino, but more on that later. Let's give a warm freak show welcome to the one and only Joe Bob Briggs. Ah, uh, thank you for that introduction. <laughs> the audience is just going crazy right now. So thanks uh, for coming to our little green screen room. Happy and, to be here. Yeah, and so happy to have you because together we share probably like 90 years of movie history, which is kind of an alarming number, but it's true <sighs> when you start adding up. <laughs> it is true. The decades. Uh, yeah, if you, I go back to. Let's see, I think I wrote my first column when I first started reviewing uh, drive-in movies in January 82. Wow. So, yeah, 40 years. 40 years. Now, yeah. I, can, I, I have about 10 more years on you because I made my first movie in 73. Um, but I started watching your program, whichever the first one was. I forget. I got them a little confused over drive -in the Drive-in theater on the movie channel. On the movie channel. Right. right. The movie channel was the... Um, you had to be a movie fanatic to, to, to have the movie channel because it was the fourth premium channel. <laughs> After right. you bought HBO, Showtime, right. and Cinemax, if you, if you just had to have one more premium channel, you would buy the movie channel. <laughs> and so, uh, so I think that's why that, that explains my longevity. You know, you can. <laughs> it's like no, don't be all. I, I would work for. I would work for uh, the 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 money that they could afford at the movie channel. Well, but your longevity has to do with how fun and different and charming and knowledgeable you are about these films. Because you started as a working for the, what the Dallas Herald. You, you were a reporter. Yeah, I was. Uh, I started reviewing drive-in movies for the Dallas Times Herald because right. at the time, as I'm sure you know. There were many movies that were never reviewed at all in right. the in the major newspapers. Right. They were considered trash. They were considered Bastards. disposable, right. you know. And so, um, uh, you know, serious family newspapers didn't review them at all. It, it actually pisses me off some, uh, when I see one of these um, glowing obituaries in the New York Times for somebody like Herschel Gordon Lewis. Because they didn't review his movies, right. you know, he right. would he would have killed for a New York Times review, even if it was a totally negative review, you know. But but you know, but now that he's dead, they <laughs> write about him, you know. Well, you know, it's sometimes it takes a while for even the public to catch up with these films. I mean, you know, there when I was a lot younger and I watched these weirdo movies on Hollywood Boulevard, I go to see them in the theater. You know, that, that was kind of it. They didn't play that much across the country. No, There was no TV or Internet. There, were, there was TV, but they never made any kind right. of network or local TV. So you either saw them in a big city briefly when they came out or then many years later on video, which was this new invention where you could 
at your leisure watch a movie on a VHS cassette. But yeah, you know. well, and in the South where I grew up, they would play at drive-ins. They would right. they would run one week. They, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like rare that they would get extended for that second week. That's right. So they would they would open on Friday with some kind of lurid ad campaign, Absolutely. lurid and newspaper ad campaign. Uh, very little radio. Occasionally, someone would splurge on radio. Just, right. just, and um, and basically, they were uh, considered a low class form of entertainment. And um, but in the big cities, you know, especially in the Northeast, they would be in the grind houses. Right. right. Um, and the, pretty much the same movies. They would move around the country. You know this. I mean, you were moving them around the country, right? They right. would, they, you know, strike thirty prints, right. play Texas, move, the, move to the southeast, move to the. And you know. these prints, these thirty-five millimeter prints. For those of you who are not aware of this, because we're in a different age now. What is a thirty-five print? Some people would ask. So, right. back then it was all film, and you know, as an independent filmmaker distributor, I was more the filmmaker. I had early experiences with distributors who never gave me a royalty after the advance. <laughs> but the idea was you make 100 prints that were expensive, like $1,000 a print, and you'd open, you would hope, in New York, and you would take those same prints and move them around the country. By the time they got to some of the smaller theaters, they were messed up. You know, they, they were broken sometimes and scratch marks, and you know, you never quite saw it the way they first saw it on either of the coasts. But that's how it worked, and you're so right about the B-movie thing. First, the more lurid the poster, the better. You needed a monster and a hot chick. That, and the chick should be dressed—I shouldn't say all this, but that's the way it was— should be dressed so scantily that, you know, one breath and she'd be naked. But you couldn't do that. You had to have enough covering on the girl in distress so that you could run the newspaper ads because, you know, newspapers wouldn't run anything with any— Thing right. close to nudity. So, you know, as a kid, I mean, I grew up in Italy, so I was a little different. But from what I've heard, you would go to these theaters. And of course, I had some play in that in the 70s. I made movies that played those theaters. And same idea, the prints of this, movies like Laser Blast. And I made some sexy, weird musical Cinderella and fairy tales, stuff all from the 70s. But you were so lucky if they played a second week. You know, it was sort of like an unbelievable. They're usually out by the following Tuesday. You know, they were just gone. Right. You know, right. Yeah. Well, I remember when I first met when I first met Roger Corman, he told me something that puzzled me at the time. And he, he said he was telling me all the rules that he goes by to make right. movies. And he said the ideal length for a feature film is eighty two minutes. <laughs> and I said, Well, why is that, Roger? And he says, Because if you go to eighty three minutes, you need you need an additional film can. Correct. And at 82 minutes, you can you can put the entire film in four in cans. In four reels. You yes. save 20% right. of your shipping costs. <laughs> right. And I thought, okay. You know, all those considerations back in the days of film are now completely moot. They, 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 there's no bearing on making movies today. Right. First, film was very expensive. So you had to be just very cautious with you know rolling too much film. So you got, as a filmmaker, you got a very small amount of film. And then... You know, you you had to organize your shoot around these small pieces of film. You know, if you had a short end, which was maybe a minute worth of film, you had to make sure that that close-up you needed was a little under a minute. You know, I mean, it was crazy. Today, you can just push a button and the digital thing goes for all eternity. But you're right. uh, The 80-odd minute movie, which was the perfect running time for sure, was a four-reel movie. 
at, at yeah. a theater. And any, but, but the problem is less was a bummer too. I had some movies that were like barely 60 minutes and then you needed a featurette because that wasn't really considered a movie back in the day unless it was oh, in, these, that's, that's in true. the 70s. I think you got to get to 70 minutes before right. it qualifies as a feature, <laughs> right? right? I, I remember there was a guy named, there was a company called Motion Picture Marketing. I, ever, I, don't, I don't know if you ever met this guy. Uh, uh, Lon Kerr was the, was the guy's name and he, he had an office in Marina Del Rey and he would um, he would send these movies around the country and retitle them, and then send them around a second time, and sometimes retitle them a third time. And I would wow. call I would call Lon and say, Lon, you know, um, Swinging Barmaids looks a lot like uh, uh, Fury of the Succubus from last year. Oh, that is Fury of the Succubus. And, he's a, uh, and so is that and is that the same as you know um, Senior Snatch? And he said, Yeah, Senior, <laughs> Senior Snatch. Snatch. Yeah, he had wait, a, wait, wait, wait. That was Senior one of his Snatch? movies. Well, that was one of his retitles, Senior Snatch. Wow. It was a kidnapping movie. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I, I completely didn't get the double so, entendre. Anyway, and it did re- very well under the title. Senior snatch. I can imagine. But uh, these guys that these these um, <laughs> these these sort of bottom of the barrel guys who were moving the you know whatever product they had, you know, um, I loved them because they were all about the poster and the ad campaign and the title. Do you think anything's you know? different today? Well, at least, at least yeah, in my like, little independent world, I mean, it's exactly how this what fuels what has fueled everything I've done forever. Yeah, it's a, but isn't it a little bit harder to get away with today? I mean, you could you could lure people in with just a poster and a title, right? Well, in, you, in 1982. There's no difference today. Today's no? more the title cuz sadly you scroll through a menu, you know, look on a streaming site, you usually see the titles before you push it and then see a piece of art. But whether it was a big lurid 30 by 40 poster or the cover of a VHS or a DVD, it was always the art and the title that you wanted to pull people in with always right. because you had no chance now you then needed to make a reasonably good movie otherwise your reputation you know was screwed so i mean but that's how it worked that's how it always works that's how it works today nothing's worse than having a well-made movie and you can't figure out how to sell it you don't know what the title is right. you're not sure what the poster is and there's plenty of examples of that right now friends of mine and one in particular has a movie terrific little film cannot figure out how to sell it. I would never make a movie unless I had <laughs> the title and the poster. Well, that's uh, that's sort of like the the perpetual dilemma of the in, indie filmmaker is like I can get the film made, but right. how can I get it into market? And um, you know, in the in the in when I started, um, newspapers were kind of your way in to the marketplace. And so if it was a big studio release, the guy, me, the guy at the newspaper, would get a fat press kit with all of this information right. in it, sure. like maybe fifteen perfect stills, right. and and they would invite you to a junket right. in sure. uh, in sure. uh, Hollywood. You know, three days interviewing the movie stars, and right. we're gonna you know and wine you did and some dine of those? you. you did some I of did those? a couple of junkets, yeah, wow. and um, and so and then. And then the guys in the drive-ins, this is why I started writing about the drive-in mm-hmm. movies. The guys in the drive-ins, I would call them up and say, hey, can you screen the movie for me? And they would say, you know what? Yeah, I, I'm going to call this guy Lonnie at the theater down on Main Street and, and tell him to let you in at, right. at 10 in the morning on Thursday. <laughs> and he'd say, and do you have any stills for the movie? He says, 
You know what, Joe Bob? Just if you see something you like in the movie, tell Lonnie cut a frame, <laughs> and they would cut a frame out of the film, and, and the and movie give it would to forever me. jump. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, was, give me that as the still to use that way, because I, I was it. the only guy asking for stills for these movies. That is unbelievable. <laughs> that is unbelievable. You know, so, um, God, there's so many stories that. I don't know how relevant they are, but that's going back to what you talked about changing titles. I'm really guilty of that over the years because as a new medium comes forward, and usually the, the titles that were more what was the snatch one called again? Senior snatch. Senior snatch. Okay. <laughs> so if I had made Senior Snatch, you know, and and I owned that title, and I had, and I was going to put it up on our streaming site on Amazon, I would have to change that title. Amazon okay. wouldn't take that. Well, yeah, I just wouldn't want to run the risk. So it'd have to be something more benign. So th as things move around, and I've been making movies for a long time, many, not many, but some percentage of my movies have changed titles, especially the ones that are a little more erotic. Because even though people know Full Moon and my work is, you know, Puppet Master and Ghoulies and From Beyond and all that stuff, smattered through all the history of making these films, I've made some erotic films. By today's standards, I don't know, hard R-rated movies, you know, but nonetheless... TNA and all the rest. I of would it. say your Cinderella and your fairy tales were yeah. pretty, pretty. Uh, yeah, they were be they were beyond the pale for those times. They were, but yeah. again, there was no hardcore banging or anything. It was just right. you know fun, sexy, lots of naked people. And when fifty naked people burst into song, you got to <laughs> smile. You know, right. it's pretty silly. But over the years, we've made movies, and I'm going to give one example, which I know I shouldn't, but nonetheless, I can't help it. Uh, there's so many that come to mind, but I'll tell you about one. So I made a movie in the, I think it was the late 80s, called Test Tube Teens from the year 2000. I thought it was a very clever title, but it really didn't appeal to anyone, okay? But it was not cheap. It was a kind of a sexy kid, youth movie, but what it had going for it, it's the star was Morgan Fairchild. We got her on board for a few days, and she was the star of Test Tube Teens from the year 2000. Okay, dissolved many, many years later, we're now in the streaming business, this is after we had released it on DVD, well, VHS and then DVD and the whole thing. And uh, it was time to release it on Amazon. And I thought, you know, let's have a more provocative title. It's kind of a coming of age movie. So I went too far and I called it Virgin Hunters, okay? Okay. okay. That's kind of the theme of the movie. And of course, after some short period of time, they took it down. Not that the movie had much in it, but the title alone. It's probably like Famous TNA, you know. They probably didn't figure out what that meant until we had Famous TNA, too. And so, but that famous tits and ass, oh, my God, take that thing down. <laughs> so Virgin Hunter's gone, all right, for seven years, six years. And I'm thinking, what a waste. It's a cute movie. And these little, you know, sexy romp movies play. And it's got F Morgan Fairchild. And now we're putting movies up on, on um, Tubi as well. So I said, let's call it Time Babes. Very benign, very fun. Right. And it's Morgan Fairchild smiling and all these little teenagers. No problem. It's running. It's doing well. But that was Test Tube Teens, Virgin Hunters, and now Time Babes. You kind of shape shift depending on where the movies are going. Right. You know, there was a whole there was a whole genre from I don't know from the I guess from the late seventies maybe to into the early nineties of I don't know what you would call the genre except it's like four guys. Trying to get laid on spring vacation, right? <laughs> yes. How many times has somebody done that plot? Hundreds, you know, uh, and never gets and, old. And um, and it would be a lot of topless women and right. 
uh, comic situations, and they they would never get laid, by the way, or maybe one of them would but get laid at the very end. That's true in real life. <laughs> it is true I in think real that's life. That's what happens. And know? I always loved that genre, and I reviewed Great every genre. one of them. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, I was talking to Jim Wynorski, you know, who's sure. made like who, who just made a we just made two movies. You made a movie with Jim mm-hmm. just now. He, I mean, how many movies has he made? Three hundred. And I said, Jim, how come you don't? How come there's no more of these beach babe movies, spring break movies, and everything? He, oh, never make one of those. It's like uh, they're, they're, they're poison. They, you know, nobody wants to see those anymore. And I said, well, why? You know, it's like all all fourteen year old boys go through <laughs> go through puberty. They Absolute want to see that fucking and, I mean, and he was like, oh, they've got porn now. They're not going to go to that. It's you not know? true. And not true. Uh, uh, so uh, and but then of course after that, American Pie came out, and, and but it was still like. You know, well, yeah, if you got a budget and you got the, you know, you got the right cast and everything, but, um, but it, but it's, it's kind of true that that genre, which was a fun, right. and and maybe we're, well, maybe we're not in a fun era anymore. To, you know, we're in, but, a, in a, yes, a very. Your point continues. You know, maybe maybe uh, you know teenagers are a little bit, bit more grim today. You know, and so they're they're not about <laughs> they're not about going. You know, the, you're, you are. Yeah. I wouldn't say you stumble. I think you're hitting the nail on the head to some degree. I made I made a bunch of those movies. I made a movie called Beach Babes from Beyond. Yeah. And, and that was distributed by Paramount just before we started the Full Moon label, and that began with Puppet Master. So having experience with those films, yeah, they don't perform kind of the way they did in the new world. They have to be more edgy and a little darker and weirder. And, you know, in, in this, these are very simple movies. As you explained, right. that plot was the same plot in every one of these things. You know, Four and guys and yeah. eight girls. <laughs> if you could afford the eight girls, <laughs> you know, possibly. But yeah, those those shows they seem to always work, and then they kind of die down. And then suddenly, someone makes a big budget one with some stars, and it's the same formula. And yes, back to the fourteen year old boys. I'm I'm I keep saying because I'll have meetings with writers or directors, and I'll say in the nicest way, look. This happens in this vampire movie, but at a certain point, we have to see boobies. <laughs> I'm sure that's probably not the way to say it today, but, you know, there's yeah. still those 14-year-old boys. And come on, these guys are now so – it's so difficult today with what's going on for them to just be little horny boys, right? So I always say let's occasionally have, you know, those scenes that we all grew up watching. It's a, it's a rites of passage, right, to some Right. And do you get them in there? Barely. <laughs> yeah. No, I, we do. We're, we do. But, you know, it's just the world is – is very different. Yeah, um, Stacy <laughs> Nelkin. You know Stacy Nelkin. She she recently told me we were doing a, a show about Halloween three, and she told me she said um, when I made Halloween three, I had a no nipple contract, right. and I said I've never heard of the oh, no yeah. nipple. Con- I've heard of the no nudity contract, but uh, no nipple. In other words, and and we we talked about it a while. So I said in other words. You will get virtually naked right. as long as the nipple doesn't show. And she said yes, that and they correct. were very imaginative in the way they could do that. Now, where where do you stand on the nipple on the nipple issue? If you don't have the nipple showing, then you can't be one of these movies. I mean, okay. it's like, come on, right. because what they do is there's side boob. That's that's literally an expression I've seen in, in documents or side. No, it's actually side boob or I they forget. put that in the contract. Yeah, yeah, it's there. Yeah. So the side is good. The back, the top, underneath, the bottom. But God Al- forbid that allowable, nipple, allowable. Well, based on your negotiation with the agent <laughs> right. representing, you know, the nipple thing. And but the nipple is a bummer, apparently. 
For, okay. for some, and you got to respect that. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I don't want to show my nipples. But it gets ridiculous if you see the entire booby except that one little Well, that, that, that's what I think. You Look can what we're see doing. 95. We're talking about this. I no, love this. Can, well, listen, this <laughs> two dudes this, talking no, about this, this is an important filmmaker. It's like the young, the, young, <laughs> yeah. the young filmmakers. You know, I go to these seminars where the young filmmakers are talking about their works and, you know, right, how they're right, not, right. they can't get their film distributed and everything. And I said, you know, you need to remember – you know, the, the, the business is 50% art and 50% business. Yes, and you have to true. learn the business side. <laughs> and right. and it's things like this that kind of like are can be do or die for the business side. That is true. Uh, because, you know, maybe, maybe you have a thousand more people watch the movie because you have the nipple. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it comes down to that. <laughs> it's also, yeah, but people, I guess, generally used to these movies having a certain amount of the nudity, the girls, the thing. I mean, it's a formula. And if it's if that right. same story has been made. And you if know, you break the formula, then well, you disappoint like, the audience. what's wrong with you? Right. You know? <laughs> Wait, what, what kind of crappy movie you're trying to make me watch here? So this is not a segue into anything, but I'm going to give you something that is – it represents how today this would be considered inappropriate, but not really. But back 15 years ago when we were producing these, it was very easy. So I'm going to give you – not tied to any of the thing other than where we are today. Your very okay. own crack whore. Oh, wow. Yes. It's a important. crack whore action yes. figure? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we made others that were I, completely I'm, inappropriate. I'm not take... even going to ask you what she does. but it, well, <laughs> well, you know, it, there are a few things left we can make fun of in this world, right? Okay. But no one cares if you make fun of crack whores. I just there, we... It's true. There's no crack whore defamation committee going to the MPAA <laughs> no, and saying. Not yet. <laughs> so whatever. We'll put it on the floor. But I just for some reason thought you would probably enjoy oh, this in your I will treasure it's, that. it's a series called it Badass Dolls but we, we won't and <laughs> for those of you who are listening remember you can always find these uh, artifacts on Full Moon uh, Direct and wherever the hell we sell this stuff so yeah Crack Horse so going back to the beginning because I'm fascinated about how you invented this character Joe Bob Briggs because your name is John Bloom right I tried to get all these names straight because you know I still have the same old name so I haven't I haven't done a switcheroo yet but how did that begin? Well, I was the uh, regular film critic for the paper. Okay. And I didn't understand why these, uh, what to me were fascinating movies that were premiering at the drive-in were not reviewed. And uh, it was for, because we're a family newspaper. Right. And I said, so right. what, if, what if there was a film critic who was purely, a, I said, these are ordinary American families going right. to these movies, right. and they hate film critics. Yep. You know, what if there was a populist film critic who loves <laughs> these movies? And that, because that would be me. Right. And, and, and so um, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll continue to do the serious film criticism, but uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to pull a, uh, it was common in the 19th century, Mark Twain, Ambrose Bierce, they wrote for newspapers and they would have a, sep a separate right. identity. Right. And so I said, I'm going to create this character and it's going to be called, called uh, you know, Joe Bob Briggs. And so we started this column. Joe Bob goes to the drive-in. I actually oh, it started as a column. It in started the paper. as a column oh, in the okay. paper. I, I started. I, tr I actually tried to hide it from the editors. I, I conspired with the <laughs> entertainment editor to uh, put it in this Friday section, Friday entertainment section that was full of discount furniture ads and things. And we put it at the very back of it because what mm -hmm. I wanted to do was build it up 
before well, one thing newspaper editors never read their paper right they look at the front page they look at the for- front sports page that's it as long as there's no crises they just go home to their big house <laughs> and so and so wow. uh, so i didn't want these guys to see it until we got it started and sure enough that's what happened they didn't see it for like 3 or 4 months by then it had developed a following oh, cool. um and we were able to um uh continue it and it was locally popular, and then it became uh, syndicated. And you're reviewing and these movies. I'm reviewing uh, drive-in, hardcore Hard drive-in movies, movies, whatever's the most interesting movie of the week. And a lot of them came from Italy. That's I didn't necessarily right. know that they came from Italy because they would disguise the names. They, they would spend enough money on the opening credits right, to right. change all the Italian names right. to English names. They would anglicize the names, <laughs> and absolutely. The, and every Italian director had his... Um, anglicized Absolutely. name. Absolutely. And, um, but, and they would put a carton of Kellogg's cornflakes on the table in the breakfast scene right. and everything to make you believe that right. it was an American movie. Right. And, uh, but then at the end, when they're doing the technical credits, then you would go, Italian. oh, there's <laughs> so many <laughs> Luigi's on this. <laughs> you know? um, well, you know, just but, briefly, because you're talking about the early 80s now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in 80, 81, I mean, without going into all my shtick, um, I, had a, I had the first a home video company on planet Earth, independent, called Meta, and then eventually Media Home Entertainment in the 70s. I sold it in 1980. Then I started a new company, another direct-to-video company called Wizard Video. I remember and, and Wizard we were kind of well-known because we had the big lurid boxes, and most of the movies that we had out, I mean, we had movies like Halloween and I Spit on Your Grave, and we eventually had Texas, Chain, uh, Texas uh, Chainsaw Massacre. But most of the movies were Italian movies since I grew up there, and I picked all those movies up, and I did very much what you just were talking about. In many cases, I changed the names so they were more familiar, that they sounded better to an American audience. And in the main credits, the main credits were usually anglicized. So, you know, you had these <laughs> right. kind of... And then, of course, the end crawl was like a lot of Luigi's, as you said. But I, I had a lot of those movies that played those theaters briefly on video, in the early days of video, all those movies. Yeah. I remember uh, Joe D'Amato, yeah, who sure. I think his real name... His real name is Aristide Masachesi. So yes, sort of, uh, and and that's and his his friends knew him as Aristide, right? Um, but um, I think he had over two hundred aliases. He, did. he, he yeah. never wanted. That's right. He never wanted anyone right. to know who made the movie, and so uh, it was a that was an Italian thing. And you got away of, with that because this is before the internet, before people could do the re- today two buttons on Google, you can understand everything. You and know? you would have all of his two hundred aliases all, yeah, yeah, right there. Everyone's yeah, everyone's piece all that stuff. You can't escape it anymore. Yeah, um, but. Um, um, so you that's, began, how, that's how it started. Right. I was I was reviewing these movies that no one else reviewed. There was just there was right. absolutely no reviews. And in fact, when I would call the distributors and say, "Is there any way to get an advanced screening of this movie?" The answer and the answer was usually, "No, we don't have any way to do that." Um, the uh, uh, they would say, "You know, we never show our films to critics." And I would say, <laughs> "Well, you don't understand." And actually, the first guy who sort of discovered the column was right. Roger Corman, and he said, "Yeah, oh, come, come out and come to okay. come to the lumberyard." He had his lumberyard out in Venice. Roger was here literally a week ago, and, I, and we had, we spent a fantastic hour together. And I met him in 1980 at his lumberyard because I made a movie at 8081 called Ghoulies. And yeah. that's how that's where we shot the interior shots of Ghoulies, and that's when I first met Roger, and we've been friends ever since. He was amazing. The guy did yeah. an hour of so many amazing stories, 
And by the time we were kind of winding down after an hour, he actually said, I think I got to go in the nicest <laughs> way possible. And I said, Roger, we just hit 1980. You know, from 1954, <laughs> that's when he made his first movie, right. to 1980. I said, you got to come back in a few years when you hit 100, because he's 96, and he was right. just amazing. Right. I said, we got to catch up the last 42 years, because we stopped at 1980, you know? Right. I don't know if he told you the story of the lumberyard, but he he wanted to, he wanted his own studio, right. wanted right. his low, own low-budget studio. Right. And the neighborhood, when they found out a, a Hollywood studio right. was going to come into the neighborhood— it was this huge protest. Well, no, we won't approve the zoning. We won't approve the zoning. And and here's Roger's solution. What if we just left the sign up and it still looked like a, a lumber yard? yard. That's <laughs> and, true. And they, that was actually their compromise. And and, and and it continued to look like it was and a lumberyard. that was the coolest thing. Because <laughs> I, when I first got wind of this and somebody, some advanced production location scout said, hey, we got a great deal, the thing. This, you know, it's Roger Corman's studio, you know, and I get the address and I'm driving into a lumberyard. I thought, is this can't be like the studio, <laughs> but it was. So he did a great job of keeping the peace. That's true. Okay, so even though we're officially running out of time, we barely scratched the surface and there's a surprise guest. So let's stop here and save the most awesome stuff for the next round. Remember to follow The Freak Show for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to watch our video version of the show on Full Moon Features and Full Moon's Amazon Prime channel. See you dudes next time.